You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. On today's episode, Adam and I were joined by Chase Anderson to talk about carve-outs. So if you think you may have a carve-out in your future, or if you don't know what a carve-out is, then you've come to the right place. Chase is a managing director of Embark's Phoenix office, and before that, he spent over a decade in the big four audit world and was the guy auditing carve-out transactions. He brought a lot of great experience and insight into today's conversation, and when you add Adam Olson into the mix, you know you're in for a lot of knowledge to be dropped. We'll walk you through what it looks like to prepare a balance sheet, income statement, and statement of cash flows for a carve-out, but first, we'll talk about what a carve-out even is. We hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. This is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined by my co-host, Adam Olson. And as a special guest, we have Chase Anderson, Embark's Managing Director out of Phoenix. And I was on a carve-out as a staff one, so I'm also here as a technical expert for today, (laughs) just in case you guys can't handle any of these questions. Just kidding. But I do think we're going to have a great conversation with these two guys as we talk through carve-outs. So let's dive in. Adam, will you kick us off with the basics? What exactly is a carve-out and what would give rise to the need to perform a carve-out? Yeah, sure. And and I don't know actually what's more painful, auditing a carve-out or actually preparing financial statements for a carve-out. So you may have actually (laughs) had some of the harder stuff. Um, But, you know, this is another area where U.S. GAAP actually doesn't define, you know, what the term carve-out means or carve-out entity means. Um, But really what happens is, you know, there's there's different circumstances that companies go through kind of through their, their life cycle and existence where there could be transactions or things that come about um, where the need to carve out or divest a piece of the business is, is warranted. So, you know, selling off a chunk of the business, IPOing, et cetera, things like that. Those strategic decisions and divestitures, you know, they're often done to help raise capital or to you know, maximize shareholder value. And so, you know, depending on the type of divestiture that comes, um, you know, it'll usually drive the uh, form and content of carve out financial statements that need to be prepared. So, you know, my example with, you know, IPOing a piece of a a business um, through a carve out, you know, could subject that those financial statements to regulatory requirements under the SEC. So speaking of financial statements, which I know we'll probably cover in more detail later, but could you give a quick overview of what carve-out financial statements are and what's their intended purpose? Yeah. So as you can imagine, if they don't define what a carve-out entity is, they obviously aren't going to tell you what carve-out financial statements are. So it is another area where there's um, actually pretty limited guidance. There's just a few SEC staff accounting bulletins that are really used as kind of the the crux of how you you account for carve out financial statements, but you know entities will often need to prepare carve out financial statements, um, you know, reflecting the operations of that divested entity, and it could be for you know a variety of reasons. Like I said, so regulatory requirements, it could just be part of like the buy side, sell side due diligence, and trying to sell off a piece of the business. Um, it, it could even be you know the need to obtain financing that you know they need carve out financial statements at a lower level of the entity. Um, but in its simplest terms, um, the the concept of carve out financial statements basically just means the financial statements of a business that are derived from like the existing parents consolidated financial statements. 
the key purpose really around carve out financial statements is to present those historical operations of that carved out business. And a big piece of that is trying to reflect all the costs of doing business for that entity. Um, you know, they, the financials themselves are no different than other financial statements or, you know, they're intended to provide the users and investors, all the information they need specific to the carve out entity so that they can make informed decisions um, themselves. And so the carve out entity itself can, it can be derived in, you know, a variety of ways. You'll see all sorts of complexities when they're trying to figure out what exactly is being carved out. It could be, you know, as straightforward as a specific subsidiary or maybe a group of subsidiaries. Um, oftentimes it's, you know, you know, smaller discrete pieces of the business. So operating units, division, certain product lines, locations, et cetera. So just one thing to kind of keep in mind is that the carve out entity doesn't actually even have to be, you know, a legal entity itself. Um, and depending on, you know, the makeup of the carve out entity, it can actually make the process uh, much more complex. As always, things are more complex than we want them to be. Uh, Chase, let's get you in here to talk about some common scenarios, specifically divestitures or exit strategies where we might see that carve out financial statements are needed. Yeah, great. Thank you. Like Adam said, there's a lot of different circumstances that require carved out financial statements and it's very facts and circumstances driven, but potential sale, you have a business and you're going to carve out you know, a specific business and you're going to sell it, You know, that can drive it. A completed sale, let's say you're selling a business to a public company, you know, there's some requirements there with the SEC of Regulation SX 3-05 that a lot of auditors love and advisors love as well. You know, that can drive a Form 8K filing. And to Adam's point, there's a lot of complexity involved there too in thinking through what the carved out financial statements are going to be. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. Uh, you can do a spinoff, try to you know, capture some value and shareholder value that can drive carved out financial statements. Uh, IPOs and SPACs, and, and that's just to name a few. And, and uh, okay. yeah, all right. Well, what about um, guidance? Well, Adam mentioned that there is limited guidance on carve-out financial statements. So, what guidance does exist for entities needing to prepare carve-outs? This is this is what I actually love about carved-out financial statements is that the guidance is so limited, and you get a lot more flexibility, and it seems more principles-based. So you can get back to just the core overarching principle: it's is what is the business, and how do you reflect the financials of that business? And really, it comes down to disclosing. And there's some there's some SEC guidance that most people and practitioners um, use as the benchmark. But as long as you have that overarching principle and disclose you know, the basis of presentation, it's kind of at your discretion to, to capture what that business actually is, which is what I love about carve out financial statements. Yeah, and I'd probably just add real quickly to that is that you know it is it is limited to SEC guidance. So mm -hmm. um, you know a lot of private companies are like, well, what do I do? And I will say it almost everybody in practice, because it is so limited, you know, whether you're public, private, doesn't matter. They really kind of fall back on that, you know, the, the, those, you know, limited SEC staff accounting bulletins to help understand what needs to go into these carve out statements. And we'll often reference that guidance um, to, to prepare those statements. Okay. So let's say we know we have a transaction where we'll need to prepare carve out financial statements. Adam, where should we start? Yeah, so step one is probably just figuring out what are we carving out? It seems like it should be obvious, but it's <laughs> it's actually probably one of the most crucial steps that you'll go through is to really trying to understand 
um, you know, what is the carve out entity? What is it, what is it comprised of and all the judgments that need to go into understanding who that carve out entity is in order to prepare the financial statements. Um, it's like I said, it's a, it can be a complex exercise and, um, you know, something that you definitely have to spend and want to make sure you get correct, obviously from the onset, otherwise the statements you put together, you know, you're going to have a lot of issues with that. And I say at the starting point, sorry to interrupt. So as I said, the starting point too, you're going to be heavily involved with legal, you know, more so than a lot of different transactions because they're, they're weighing in and structuring. And a lot of this is happening kind of the outset of a transaction, even occurring as you're thinking through things. So the auditors and accounting advisors are, you know, looping in legal a lot more than I've seen in in other transactions. So in light of that complexity, um, are there common approaches used in practice? Yeah, there are, and you'll you'll hear them often referred to as like the legal entity approach, or um, which is obviously just kind of divesting of a legal entity or a group of legal entities. And then um, on the other hand, you have one called the management approach when you you have a little bit more hair, I guess, around the, the carpet entity itself. Those are the two that you'll see used in practice. And are there certain transactions that might lend themselves more towards one of those over the other? There are. Yeah. So let's, um, we can take each one kind of step by step. So the legal entity approach, like I said, it's really when the divestiture mirrors the company's legal entity structure. So they're selling off, you know, one legal subsidiary, you know, it's pretty obvious what's being sold. Um, so it's, it's generally reserved when it's the sell of that one, you know, legal subsidiary, or, you know, maybe substantially all of that legal subsidiary, maybe there's a small element of it that's retained, but Generally, it represents all of the legal entity. Um, on the other hand, the management approach is really used for most other situations. Um, and you know, this is going to be true when the divestiture or the carve-out entity does not re- represent a legal entity or group of legal entities, but is rather, you know, a combination of you know a bunch of entities or a bunch of assets and liabilities that constitute what's going to be called the carve-out entity itself. And, and this is probably more common what you see. And when you hear people talk about the complexities around carve-outs, it's, it's when they're kind of putting together this, I don't know if you want to call it like a Frankenstein entity where they're just kind of piecing together all parts of the business that they do want to divest and off or IPO or whatever the case may be. Um, and, it, and it's going to fall through this management approach, which is basically saying, you know, you're going to present information that is considered most meaningful to the financial statement users. So you know, including things in a legal entity structure that aren't part of the sale wouldn't make sense. So it, it basically is going to need to be, you know, a, a set of statements that are pieced together um, through a variety of techniques and allocations and things like that in order to present um, the carve out entity under the management approach. Okay, so a specific scenario for you here. Let's say um, there's a transaction where um, they're divesting a legal entity, but um, not a significant portion. So a piece would be retained by the parent and kind of transferred back to them. What happens with the portion that is not being sold um, from that legal entity when thinking about this? Yeah. So if it was, if you were using the legal entity approach, um, you know, which you know, is likely going to be the most appropriate one here because you are divesting of a legal entity except for just a small piece. Um, you generally would present all of the historical results of that legal entity, including those that are retained by the parent. 
um, in the historical periods of those financial statements through the date that that transfer happened. Um, one thing you'd probably have to think about for those statements is, you know, possibly presenting that piece that's going to be retained by the parent as like a discontinued operation if it was significant enough. Um, but, you know, obviously looking at the guidance there separately. Um, and then obviously you would probably have to adjust through pro formas um, that piece of the business. Um, if you were required to prepare pro forma information um, that was retained by the parent. And then on the other hand, if you were doing the management approach, you know, you're really just looking at kind of the, the net assets that you're getting um, in the divestiture itself. So you would generally exclude anything that's not going to be part of the card identity. Okay, so I assume that the basis of presentation is going to be impacted uh, based off whichever approach management takes. So Chase, is there a way to inform users um, about how we're presenting this information? Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and this drives you know, a lot of the financial statements is that basis of presentation, making sure at the start you get, you get this right. Um, and there's a couple of ways to do it. And so when the financial statements constitute a legal entity that has a controlling financial interest in all other entities, uh, the financial statements are referred to as consolidated. And that's what you typically see in SEC financial statements of just parent entities. It's consolidated because they have a controlling interest in all their subsidiaries. Um, conversely, in a situation when there are multiple legal entities included in the financial statements, but they are not under common control uh, of a single legal entity, those are generally referred to as combined. Uh, what's interesting about this is that when you, when you look at other interpretations of carve-outs, some guides say that they can only be combined or consolidated. Other guides say you can have combined and consolidated. So it's interesting this, the differences in practices with, with what you call your financial statements, either consolidated or combined. But, but typically what we see is it's one or the other. What about accounting policies of the carve-out entity? Are the parents carried over to the carve-out? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and generally they are. Generally the parents' accounting policies are applied um, to the subsidiary. Now there's, there's some, some certain uh, circumstances that that might not be the case. And it's generally when there's immaterial accounting policies at the parent that now are material to the carve out. And those would generally be applied on a basis that the entity determines uh, and disclosed appropriately. And typically when those policies are immaterial to parent and now disclosed at the carve out, those do not constitute a change in accounting principle of the carve out in accordance with ASC uh, 250. So Chase, what about accounting standard adoption? I know there's a lot of new standards constantly rolling out. So can this create issues for carve-out entities, especially if they're being prepared for IPO purposes? Yeah, there can be, especially when the, the parent entity is a private company and has not adopted certain accounting standards as they are not yet effective. Um, if the carve-out entity meets the definition of a public business entity, it would be required to apply new accounting standards uh, in line with public business entities. Um, an exception to this rule would be if the carve-out entity was considered a small reporting company or an emerging growth company in which it would adopt in line with private companies under the extended transition provisions. And for IPO specific, uh, a carve-out entity that's preparing for an IPO is not considered a PBE. Uh, that does not mean, uh, that does not happen until the registration statement is effective and that's, that's pretty important to remember. Uh, therefore, the carve-out statements included in the registration do not have to reflect the new standard adoptions in line with other PBEs, uh, and that's a nice piece of relief right there. Very nice. We like relief. Um, 
<laughs> Adam, you want to dive into some specific examples uh, within the financial statements, starting with the balance sheet? Are there certain overarching principles that preparers use when pulling these together? Yeah, so let's uh, take the carve out balance sheet. So, I mean, obviously, the things that go in it need to be the assets and liabilities related to the operation of that business, right? It seems like that's pretty obvious, um, but not always straightforward to figure out how to get there. You know, so sometimes there's a bunch of other factors that you you definitely want to think through um, when you're trying to figure out if certain assets or certain liabilities are attributed to the carve out business and whether or not they should be included. So some of those is looking at, you know, from an asset side, if, you know, someone's got legal title to that asset, or when you're thinking about obligations, like who's actually the legal obligor of those obligations, um, to understand whether or not you should reflect some of that stuff. You know, we've talked about the legal entity kind of structure. So when there are legal entities that maybe exist within the carve-out entity, so if the carve-out entity is, is a large entity, but within that, you know, that structure, there are individual legal entities, then Obviously, the assets and liabilities associated with those are usually more straightforward, but um, oftentimes, I think what we find is that there is a lot more complexity and judgment that's required, um, especially when there's not a well-defined legal structure within the carve-out entity. What I love about carve-outs, though, is you get your starting points is somebody else's, you know, the parent's financial statements. And so anytime you slice and dice it, you can always get back to the whole right. to, to make sure what you're doing makes sense from a big picture standpoint for the business and the legal entities, which is which makes accounting a little bit easier. Yeah. Shouldn't be, shouldn't be a ton of surprises <laughs> as far as like what you're searching for, hopefully. But yeah, then just trying to figure out like, is it mine? Is it not mine? That's, that's the challenge. Yeah. And sometimes with those the agreements, how they're structured, that's where legal gets involved. And, you know, lawyers like to write ambiguous terms to, uh, for specific reasons. And so, you know, as you're going through it, yeah, it's, it's, it's helpful to get legal involved and understand who gets what at the end of the day. Yeah, let them untangle the, the pile of spaghetti noodles. <laughs> um, is there a specific process or best practice for how someone should uh, begin trying to figure out which assets or liabilities should or should not be included? Yeah, yeah, there is. And Chase is kind of like alluding to this, you know, basically saying when you, you take the parent's existing balance sheet, right, and you're trying to go through that, you know, that's the best starting point is just looking through that. Mm-hmm parent's balance sheet line by line and really evaluating each of those line items um, to figure out whether or not you should attribute those to the carve-out business or not. Um, So, you know, for some balances, it's going to be pretty straightforward, but, you know, others, like we said, may not be as obvious to figure out what to do, especially when you've got, you know, certain assets, for example, that are used in multiple entities operations of the carve-out entity, as well as other, you know, entities of the parent or the parent itself. Um, and trying to figure out whether or not that should be included in the carve-out entity. Um, you know, one question I often get is like, can we ever just allocate like portions of an asset or portions of a liability? And generally it's not appropriate like to take some like bifurcation of certain assets when you think about like, what is the actual unit of account that you're working with for assets and liabilities? So that's not the way to go about it. Um, so it's really whether or not you should have the full attribution of most assets or liabilities um, on your carve-out financial statements or not. Um, And to the extent that you have um, certain assets or liabilities that are excluded from your balance sheet, but they are used in your operation, um, generally what we'll see is that there is often, you know, some allocation of related expense for use of those assets. So for example, if you've got 
certain fixed assets that are used across, you know, the parent entity, you know, and the carve out entity shares in some of those fixed assets. You know, it may not make sense to put the fixed assets on the carve out entity's books because it doesn't go with the carve out entity. It's used by a variety of other pieces of the business. Um, but instead, because they do use the asset, those fixed assets, they should reflect a piece of the depreciation on their on their balance or sorry, their income statement. So kind of goes back to that, like all cost of doing business, which, you know, I know we'll cover a bit more on the income statement side. Yeah, you f I feel like you alluded to some really important things there, Adam. And uh, like you said, we'll talk more about allocation of expenses a little bit later. Um, but first, let's uh, focus in on some balance sheet stuff, particularly those things that give people headaches, like um, fixed assets, which you alluded to, and intangibles such as goodwill are some things that come to mind. Chase, could you talk a little bit about um, what that looks like for those yeah. specifically? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, uh, it depends too on the, on the business that's being divested. And so when it comes to like a manufacturing company, a lot of manufacturing businesses are global and you've got assets scattered. And when you're trying to figure out who's doing what, because a lot of times you've got shared assets, as, as Adam said, you got to figure out who's going to get it and who, and who's it belongs to. And that's, and that's one step. And it's a, you know, it's a whole, a whole system of approach too of, coordination, which is great. But um, you know, when you think about fixed assets and intangibles, you really got to think about, is it used solely by the carve-out entity? And it's usually pretty straightforward to kind of get to that understanding of who gets it and who's using it um, to include it in the carve-out financial statements. However, many times the fixed assets are, you know, are shared by multiple entities um, or by the entire parent as a whole. And so when they're shared, as Adam said, it's not appropriate to split a, an asset. Uh, from a unit of account perspective, if you have a, a manufacturing press, you can't cut it in half. You know, it's either going to company A or to company B, and there's no other way about it. Um, and and the same is with intangible assets too, for the for the most part. Um, and so we'll talk about allocations because a lot of that kind of is on the on the income statement uh, here in a minute. But goodwill is a, a good a great one where there's more complexity uh, at the outset of when goodwill is recorded. It's usually not thinking about a business being sold at a future point in time. So how that goodwill is calculated, um, you know, you have to go back and reassess at the time of carve out, you know, should some of that goodwill be attributable to the carve out business. And you have to think about at the time that goodwill was set up, you know, using information available at that point in time. And we'll talk about that too here in a little bit from an impairment um, point of view. But if there's goodwill recorded at the parent, at day one from a business acquisition that is attributable to a portion of the business that is being carved out, you, know, you got to figure out how to attribute that fair value to that carve out. And it can be complex um, if there wasn't great records uh, kept at the time. And so that's, that's one that usually requires more judgment, more estimation and more involvement from accounting advisors and, um, and auditors like. Speaking of judgment and estimations, how does impairment work for these assets in a carve-out? That, that's a great question. Uh, for long-lived assets, like fixed assets and certain intangibles, a carve-out entity would need to think about any impairment indicators that may have existed at the points in time uh, in the historical financial periods. Uh, but management should be careful not to use hindsight, which can often be difficult in making these evaluations. Um, asset groupings as well will be different for carve-out entities when an indicator is noted in any historical periods. Management will need to test for impairment at their carbon entity asset group levels. Uh, similar to the hindsight point on the indicators, 
they need to also be careful that cash flow is used to test recoverability and or measure an impairment loss or based on what information they would have had at the historical impairment assessment date. So that's a little bit different in terms of you know, what we know now and having this open window to prepare historical financial statements, you should use what was available at that point in time. So that might take some, some digging to, to go back and, and find and, and analyze. Mm -hmm. uh, and for goodwill, there will be a requirement to test for impairment annually at each historical period. This means a carve out entity will need to determine its reporting units to understand where to test for goodwill impairment. Again, if cash flows are used in the impairment assessment, they should not include hindsight assumptions. That's, that's key. Also keep in mind for the essential historical period presented, management will also need to test for impairment in the opening goodwill balance. So opening, think opening balance sheet, you have to do analysis at that point in time as well. Um, and this will be in addition to the recurring annual impairment test. And that can be quite a bit of work to put together and, and takes quite a bit of time. So this one, goodwill is very, very important. You can't, under, you can't understate that one. It sounds like hindsight is some, you almost have to turn that little part of your brain off and go back in time and put yourself um, yeah, it's, it's, different. it's different. And you have to think about it too, in terms of subsequent events, which I think we're going to cover here in a little bit where there's the hindsight, the windows is a different window to think through. Yeah. It'd be very difficult to do uh, a carve out for like 2019 in the year 2020, just thinking about how different things were, um, remove that hindsight. Um, well, are there any other balance sheet accounts you want to highlight that may have complexities? Um, related to carve-outs? Yep. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple more that that um, practitioners should be mindful. Debt and, and taxes come to mind, and we'll start with debt. Um, back to the, to the business nature, um, thinking through how the business operates. And so you have to think through with debt, it's legally obligated by a business. And so to the extent that debt is legally going to be the obligation of the carve-out entity, generally the debt follows that obligation. And so with a parent entity being the debt holder, if that is the case, and it's not at a subsidiary or the carve-out level, generally debt would not go to the carve-out if it's the obligation of the parent. Um, and that's one that is, it can be complex and, and should have involvement for management. And a lot of times too, a lot of these carve-outs can be structured cash-free, debt-free, which we'll talk about cash and the statement of cash flows here in a minute. Um, and if that's the case, you know, it's, the obligation is not on the carve-out entity. Uh, with taxes, no surprises, taxes can be extremely complex. And this is one that's going to involve the tax accountants as well and helping to prepare um, kind of what's called the bottoms up approach in assessing a carbon entity. Um, so on the balance sheet, the carbon entity, the entity itself should not include any current or deferred tax balances um, because the entity does not, unless that entity files its own tax return. Uh, this is generally not the case, especially where management approach is used and the carve-out entity isn't a legal entity. Uh, instead, ASC 740 highlights that, you know, curtain and deferred tax expenses for a group that files one consolidated tax return should be allocated among members of the group when they issue their own separate financial statements. Um, and this is most commonly done through a separate return method uh, under ASC 740. And so I always just think, not top down and preparing the returns, but bottom up and kind of really understanding how it's going to filter up to the to the ultimate new carve out entity that's reporting as the bill, and that's and that can be very complex. Uh, when you first said debt and taxes, I heard death and taxes. So <laughs> I think that's a great way for our listeners to remember things to consider. You know, death and taxes. Yeah, um, all right, so we've covered assets, liabilities. What's left on the balance sheet, Adam? 
equity. So what do people need to consider when uh, with the equity portion? Yeah, so equity, again, is going to kind of depend on which approach you take. So obviously, if you're doing like the full legal entity approach, you're going to have like the, you know, the historical structural full equity, you know, legal presentation of that, of the equity statement itself. But generally, when you, you know, you got carve outs that under this management approach, it's clearly not uh, a traditional equity structure. So when you're thinking like what actually goes into um, the equity statement itself, it's it's something that you'll see referred to as kind of a, a line item called like a net investment in parents, um, which really kind of represents a lot of kind of catch-all things that traditionally you would see run through equity itself. Um, so the the equity statement itself is much more simplified. It's generally this net investment in parents to the extent they've got other comprehensive income items um, or potentially some non-controlling interests related to the carve-out entity. Um, you'll see that under a, a management approach carve-out scenario. So conceptually, what does the net investment in parent represent? Yeah, so like I said, it. A lot of people are like, is that like the plug for the balance sheet to make it work? And it sometimes feels like that when you're preparing these statements. But really, it is it is made up of several things that that flow through that one line item. So the first is basically like all the financing that carve out entity receives um, from the parent entity, basically to fund its operations. Um, and that's, you know, obviously through contributions to the carve out business itself that they're not going to repay. Um, it could be comprised of cash dividends to the parent if they are paying back cash payments to the parent. Um, it can reflect cost allocations um, that are made from the parent entity, um, you know, for things like shared expenses or you know, certain salaries, things like that, for example. Um, so obviously going to also, you know, include the carve out entities, you know, accumulated earnings that need to be reflected there. Um, cash contributions, like I said, from the parent, dividends back, and then even like settling, you know, certain intercompany transactions between the parent, you know, oftentimes for a certain working capital. So, you know, intercompany receivable, payable, settlement of that type of stuff. I always consider the plug myself. I always, I do balance sheet first, income statement second, and then my leftovers in the, in, in the net parent plug. Yep. Yeah. Well, we've covered the balance sheet now. Um, and as Chase just said, we got to think about our income statements. So Adam, what are some general principles that our preparers should keep in mind when focusing on their income statement? You know, we've touched on, or we've hinted at it, I guess, rather about mm -hmm. certain allocations and things like that. So I'll cover the easier things first. So usually revenues are pretty straightforward in most carve out businesses, you can figure out which revenues are attributed to the carve out entity. Mm -hmm. Likewise, any like cost of sales, cost of goods sold associated with the carve out entity um, are usually pretty easy to identify um, or easier to identify um, than other expenses. Um, but like I said, you know, the other expenses can't be a bit more judgmental. Um, and this really just comes down to whether or not you know, similar to the balance sheet, should we include a cost for certain things? Should we include a portion of a cost for certain things? What do we need to reflect on our on our income statement here? Because, you know, this is one area where the SEC does provide some guidance and they really do highlight that, you know, when you're preparing carve out statements, particularly for the income statement, that entity really needs to reflect all the costs of doing business. 
And so if there are shared costs or things that need to be reflected for the carve-out entity, they need to be included. And coming up with an appropriate methodology or approach is where really where the, the judgment comes in, the complexity comes in, and where um, you know people spend quite a bit of time, I think, trying to figure out should it or should not this expense be there. So what are maybe some common types of costs that parents might incur on behalf of the carve-out entity um, that need to be considered? I feel like those could very easily be overlooked. So Chase, could you kind of dive into those for us? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And I I tend to think of some of those allocated costs as corporate kind of costs. And the SEC guidance lays out some examples in that, you know, officer and employee salaries, you know, if if there's some cross, um, their rent depreciation, amortization, advertising costs, professional services such as legal, accounting, uh, management advisories. Um, and then, you know, there's this other general selling, general administrative costs that need to be considered. So how does management practically figure out how much of these different costs to allocate? Yeah, and this is also kind of addressed by the, the SAB topic that, that Adam was alluding to. And the SEC staff acknowledged that many costs will be hard to directly identify how much should be included. And as a result, some type of allocation process will be needed. Uh, when allocations are used, carbon entities will include disclosures around the use of allocations. And this is what I love about the principles base. You can kind of get back to what's reasonable for the business. And as long as you disclose it, um, you're not gonna get too much too much grief. Um, so when a cost is fully attributable to a carbon entity, 100% of that cost should be reflected. And that's pretty, pretty straightforward. But when costs are shared, allocation method, methods um, you know, could include percent of revenue, the headcount, square footage of buildings, proportional usage. Um, and like I said, a lot of this has judgment involved in, in trying to find the most appropriate methodology to allocate those costs to how the business is actually being operated. Okay, so it sounds like the income statement is a little more straightforward than the balance sheet. Um, and now on to everyone's favorite financial statement, the statement of cash flows. Um, <laughs> I assume we base the cash flows on the balance sheet we created for the carve out. Anything teams working on cash flow need to keep in mind? Yeah, that's, that's you're, you're spot on. And cash flow is typically where I've, where I've seen as a practitioner the most misstatements just across all my audits and, and uh, consulting uh, you know, projects. There's a lot of errors in the cash flow that get overlooked. The last because to be done. Last, last <laughs> to be done, absolutely. The forgotten um, statement. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, but the cash flow always seems like one of the last things that management puts together in this, in this process, but the, the, the carve-out cash flow can prove to be quite challenging. And one thing to keep in mind is that the carve-out entity may not even have any cash on its balance sheet. And that's what I was saying earlier. And some of these deals can be cash-free, debt-free, or the business has no cash. Everything is funneled to the parent. And instead, they're going to be due to, due from um, entity balances reflected on the statement. This gets back to what Adam was talking about in the statement of equity. There are a lot of do to do froms of what historically was some intercompany accounts. Um, and a large piece of the cash flow activity will often be what was intercompany, like I just said. Um, and the nature of those intercompany transactions will d- determine the cash flow um, classification. Well, speaking of intercompany transactions, can we dive into that just a little bit further? Um, wouldn't many of those now become related party transactions, Adam? Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, many of the transactions that you, when you think about the parent, you know, when they're looking at those and their consolidation, you know, those would eliminate. Um, but in the separate carve out financial statements, you know, those are going to be reflected as related party transactions. So, you know, you're going to have to have disclosures around that or SEC filers, you're going to have to present that on 
um, on the face of the financial statements. So, you know, management really needs to spend um, quite a bit of time, I think, making sure that they've appropriately got the full population of all the related party transactions. I think it tends to be one of the more significant um, disclosures, but notes that uh, management has to, you know, prepare uh, just because there can be quite a bit of stuff that falls into it. Um, so just doing the diligence there to make sure that they properly identified and disclosed those matters. So earlier, we kind of touched on the fact that a lot of carve-outs are done in preparation for SEC filings. How would earnings per share requirements kind of work itself out for a carve-out, especially when it's not a legal entity and it's made up mostly of net investment in the parent? Yeah, so this is the easy one. They don't have to do it. So if you've got a management approach, you've got that, you know, unique equity structure, just the net investment apparent. There's obviously no shares or anything that compute and earnings per share. So you don't present anything for earnings per share. We love when you don't have to do stuff. <laughs> um, we did touch on this one earlier too. We were leaving all kinds of little teasers. What about subsequent events? How does management perform this assessment? Yeah, I think this is one that people often ask questions about here um, that they need to kind of think through. So you obviously do have to do a subsequent event, you know, analysis, performance, and and think about anything that potentially needs to be recognized or disclosed in the carve-out entity financial statements. You know, that's no different than any other set of um, financial statements themselves. Um, But the questions usually come about is how you should evaluate subsequent events particularly when the carve-out statements are going to be issued after the parent entity has already issued their financial statements. And the carve-out entity statements are obviously derived from those parent entities' financial statements. So it's whether or not if there is an event that's identified that would require recognition in those financial statements by the carve-out entity, should you actually reflect that or just disclose it? And so, you know, there's not specific... Um, well, I guess I should say there's, there's a, you know, there's a couple points of view, but I would say the most common precedent that I see in practice is that carve-out entities do not recognize any subsequent events that wouldn't have already been recognized by the parent entity, and instead they only disclose them. And they, they do this, you know, people that take this position, I guess, do it by analogizing to ASC 855, which is kind of guidance around reissuance of financial statements. And because, like I said, the carve-out statements are derived from those previously issued financial statements of the parent entity, um, it wouldn't be appropriate to reflect changes in the carve-out statements that weren't reflected in the parent entity statements. So, you still got to do the evaluation, but if you do identify stuff that should have been recognized, um, generally it is, it is appropriate only to disclose those as um, subsequent events because, you know, when the carve-out statements, I should say, rather, are um, issued after the parent entity's financial statements. One more reason to love carve-out financial statements. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, this, I think, will be the funnest question for y'all as we round out the conversation Are there any best practices or advice you would give to those who are tasked with preparing these financial statements for carve-outs? Yeah, and I can start with with this one, Adam. And what comes to mind as a a previous auditor was materiality. So keep in mind, you need to reevaluate conclusions made at the parent entity level in light of lower materiality thresholds for the carve-out, most likely. Uh, This could relate to accounting policy judgments that we talked about earlier, as well as audit adjustments um, and historical periods. 
So keep in mind the lower materiality threshold during the audit will likely lead to incremental testing. And I experienced that as an auditor, a lot more samples um, on, my, on my car audits. Um, the other one, it's documentation. And documentation is as absolutely key in this. This is bringing home every single account we were covering of when you're slicing and dicing carve outs. It's going back to the, even to the basis, documenting what the basis of presentation is and, and why, and then how your assessment was done for each of the accounts. Um, this often results in you know, a technical accounting memo or two or three, as, as well as you know, pretty detailed Excel workbooks that show your starting point of the parent and then how you actually sliced and diced it, um, which is great because it's completeness and accuracy is everyone's favorite word and in, in preparing statements and, and auditing. And it has the trail of, okay, how did you actually do this? And can I get back and reperform the judgments made and the methodologies? And then taking a step back and saying, at the end of the day, does my carve out business make sense in relation to the whole? And, and that to me is the best part about this whole exercise. Yeah, and I'll jump in with a couple here just to round out. So you know, I think one is just like, don't underestimate how long it takes to do these statements and, you know, the effort itself. Um, you know, we mentioned the word complex it's several times in this, in this podcast, in this discussion. And so, um, you know, that's important to keep in mind because there's also a lot of time pressure usually when you're preparing carve-out statements, you know, especially if they're being used for, um, you know, certain capital market transactions, they need to get audited. Um, you know, everyone wants to get their hands on them and get started and you're doing multiple periods often all at once. So it's just a lot to juggle. So, you know, management really needs to think about, do they have the experience on their team? Do they have the bandwidth on their team and identify early if you don't and bring in help because, um, you know, the earlier you can get people invested in the project, um, you know, early on, it, it just makes for a more efficient way to prepare the statements and get them through auditors and ready to be filed or whatever the case may be, depending on the divestiture itself. Um, and that includes any specialists as well. So, you know, we mentioned impairments and things like that. So just, you know, teeing up valuation specialists, tax specialists, um, all those other parties that need to be, you know, brought in early to the conversation. And then, and then probably lastly, you know, just thinking about bringing people into the conversation, you know, this also includes your auditor. So, you know, this is, going to be something that you're going to be walking the line with them as you start on this journey to prepare carve out statements and get those audited. Um, and, you know, it's just important as you're making key judgments, you know, big decisions that you're, you're talking to them and making sure that they agree along with that. So you don't, you know, find yourself in a weird position, you know, down the road in the middle of the carve out, trying to justify certain things that you should have had a discussion with them earlier about. So, Make sure there's buy-in from your auditors. Um, you know, it comes down to your documentation again that Chase had mentioned. So if you've got robust, good documentation, I think it helps make that that conversation and that buy-in process a little bit easier. So um, just definitely make sure you're you're you've got everyone at the table that needs to be at the table. Awesome. Well, I think we've covered it from a high level from start to finish. Um, if any of our listeners would like to learn more or have any questions about today's discussion, please find a bark on LinkedIn and connect with us. We'd love to hear from you, especially about future podcast topics or just to say hi. Uh, thanks, Adam and Chase, for carving out some time to talk oh, wow. about carve-outs. <laughs> yeah, I know, low-hanging fruit, but I needed to do it. Uh, and thank you to our listeners for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. 
This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant, subsequent, authoritative guidance issued.